Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give me focus as we, uh, as I uh, prepare to share the word this morning, as I prepare to unpack your scriptures and, and uh, speak of, of uh, you know, the principles and the ideas and the truths and, and really the gospel message uh, therein. I pray for your grace on me and your mercy uh, as I, as I uh, um, share the word this morning. And I pray for your grace as I do this. Uh, in Christ's holy name I pray. Amen. Um, all right. So, uh, if you do not have an outline, uh, we do have outlines in the back and pencils and pens, and uh, you can kind of follow along. And the other thing that comes with that is that uh, if you have questions, you can write questions. And if I ever manage to figure out a day and time to do a deep dive uh, stream on, uh, on the Facebook page, uh, I'll answer questions and I'll interact with, uh, with you all in that regard. Uh, my two very lovely assistants are handing them out. So if you raise your hand, uh, they will bring one to you. Uh, and um, before I dive into the text, we're still in the book of Acts and there are Bibles in the pews. So if you, um, I thought, I, I really genuinely thought John was raising his hand to ask a question. Uh, <laughs> or we're suddenly Pentecostals and everybody's praising the Lord. And, uh, anyway. Um, so we just moved into a new house. I, I think we've mentioned this before, and we're very slowly settling in and very slowly unpacking, and, and um, hopefully today we'll do some painting in, in one of the rooms so we can finish unpacking. Um, but but all, of our, all of our moving in, um, we, one of the first decisions you have to make as you move into a new house is deciding what and who goes where, Right. And so the first time the kids walked through the house, they laid claim to their rooms. In Titus's case, he picked a closet to live in. You went on and on about wanting it, you turkey. You guys can fight for the room later. Um, but we have a TV room that's at the bottom of the stairs, and, like, there's a TV there, and the Xbox is there, and the kids can play video games. And then we have another, like, second living room, which uh, is part of the original core of the house that was built in the early 1900s. And in this second room, we sort of partitioned it with bookshelves, and we've got a dining room on one side, and we wanted to have an area with couches where you could sit and talk or play board games or whatever. And so we have this space. But in this second room, I decided to put... Some of y'all don't remember, we used to have a different projector that, that I bought. It was my projector because I don't like that one. And so I got a better one on clearance, open box, super cheap. And, and I, I, we used it for a while until the church got a, got a better one. And, and then I took it home. And, and over the years, I've, uh, I think I bought a pull-down screen eventually. Actually, I know I did. And we had to decide where to put this. And so we put it in the room where we have our couches and our talking slash not TV area because I had to put it somewhere. And I will show you. This is that, the edge of that room when the screen is down. And a lot of times we would, you know, we've only used it to watch movies a few times um, in the last like six-ish weeks. So we had about six weeks. Um, but a lot of times I'll leave the screen down because it's a lot of work to line it up with the, with the projector, you know. And, and I'll, honestly, I'm really lazy. Um, and I'm absent-minded, and so when I get done watching something or doing whatever, I'm going to go and do something else. And um, so it, a lot of times you walk through that room, and this is what you would see, right, is this screen. 
Well, um, I, I'm trying to get into the habit of putting it back up because I don't want it to be a TV room. And so I put it back up, and behind it is a set of curtains. They're, they're blackout curtains. They were uh, The Brumwells put them up. We liked the color. We liked the fact that we didn't have to buy them. Um, and, and so they've remained, and for the most part, they've been closed. Now, I was um, in a really stressful day the other day, and I uh, went for a walk in the evening with my wife, and I said, I'm going to sit, and I'm going to look out the window. And so I opened the open the windows, and here is the window, which isn't very clean at the moment, but you can see our backyard. And what happened was I'm sitting there looking out the window, and Josh walks in and says, wait, there's a window here? It was like last week, okay? And I, I, you know, I, I, I said, Josh, we've been living in the house for six weeks. You didn't know there was a window in this room? Well, no. And I, I, uh, I said, well, actually, it's not a window. It's the TV. I'm just playing a video game called Real Life. <laughs> and, and without skipping a beat, he said, I've seen better graphics. <laughs> so the commotion drew the other children. And, like, soon we're all laughing and making jokes about the video game. And I actually got a controller. And I'm sitting there like, you know, oh, a, car go- a car's going by, you know, and, oh, a bird. You know, and, and it's, a, it's a hard game, but real life is a better game than, you know, your Xbox games. And we're joking, and then Jess came in and put on video game music. And before you know it, the kids are outside play fighting. And she usually has video of it. I took a picture of Abby outside the window. You can see her there doing something kids do. I don't understand kids with their cds and their long pants you know and and so she went out there i took a picture of her and and the reason i'm taking this picture is because um and the reason i'm showing you this and telling you this story is because it it sort of fits what we're going to talk about today we live in a world right we live in a world where there are all kinds of really awesome things around us beautiful amazing um you know delicious uh you know, sometimes scary like, like, and majestic and everything else. Like the world is full of stuff like that. And part of the reason I would argue that that is the case is because God is the most amazing artist that ever existed. Um, and he creates beautiful and, like, breathtaking things. And every one of those things, like, kind of has almost his thumbprint on it. You know, you can see God in the creation around us. And the problem is that if we look at the creation itself and try to see God in the creation, if we know God, we can see his fingerprints. But a lot of folks don't. Because of our nature, we're dead in sin. And we look around us and we see, like, bad imitations. You know what I mean? Like, low-rent, dollar-store versions of who God really is. And a lot of times folks reach this crazy point where they look at the projection or the shadows on the cave wall, if you're really, really clever and get my reference, like, like, and they assume that's God. And they begin to worship things that aren't God. And the world is full of that. And, and if you look around, like a lot of times it's easy for us to do it. Um, then there are folks who know there's a God, but have not, haven't met him, haven't gotten to know him live distant from him, and assume that God is behind a curtain and you'll never really know him. 
right? They assume God is always mad or God is always, wow, they kicked you out that fast. Is always rubber stamping everything I do. And, and so everything I do is okay. He just wants me to be, I mean, like there are all these crazy ideas. But the, the big central thing is God is far away. Um, but in reality, in our world, we can catch very real glimpses of who God is. And most real we see in Christ. Most complete we see in Christ. Um, I'm going to come back to this in a bit. We're going to be talking about cheap knockoffs today. Um, and you all have seen this, right? Like, like I, last time I was in Toronto, I almost bought a Rolex on the street. Um, it was obvious that most of the hands were glued on under the glass, right? They didn't turn. And, like, it was pretty clear it wasn't going to last very long. But I wanted to buy it just so I could say, oh, see my Rolex? Um, but... The world is full of knockoff versions of the God of grace, knockoff versions of Jesus. And like, like as we dive into our text today, my main point, if you're going to fall asleep right now, Josh, stop it. Uh, if you're going to fall asleep right now, the one thing I want you to get out of this is only God deserves worship. And that everything else is just a bad imitation of his glory. If we worship the mountains, we're worshiping something majestic that he laid the foundations of and created and painted and repaints every time it snows and every time the sun rises and everything else. Like, like it is an amazing thing, but it is not God. It's a smaller, lesser, like inferior version of who he is. So with all of that in mind, we left off last week with Peter escaping. Peter escaped from jail. It was a keystone cops kind of act, right, Um, in the book of Acts. An angel takes Peter away after the brother of John, James, the the disciple, the apostle, like one of the original 12, was killed by Herod Agrippa. And um, if you want to know more about that, you can go and you can have a look. Peter was about to be executed. In the very last moment, he is saved by an angel and taken away. And Peter ends up going into hiding. And the next morning, um, Herod was doing this, by the way, because he was trying to win favor with the people. And he won some favor by killing James, right? There were a lot of people who were opposed to the church. There were a lot of people that were fighting them. And he said, well, this is an opportunity. I'm going to kill their leaders. And in the morning, having Peter having escaped, in the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. So, pause right there. I think there's a handful of stuff going on right here, right? Um, But it's important to note that a guard who allowed a prisoner to escape suffered the punishment that the prisoner was supposed to get. It was an incentive system. If they were going to torture the prisoner and you let him get away, you got tortured. In this case, they were going to kill Peter, and so they killed the guards. Um, I think there's another reason there, and that is that Herod's will, Herod Agrippa, um, his will was blocked. Anybody ever get that where you want something and something gets in the way? You tell the children to go to bed early and they won't. You, you know, have decided you're going to, Um, do this over the weekend and your wife has a to-do list for you, a honey-do list, right, or whatever. I mean, like all of these things that get in our way, they oftentimes make us mad because our sinful hearts, our sinful nature is inclined to believe that our will is immutable, 
Nothing should get in the way. I should get my way no matter what, right? Everybody kind of get this? You see it as we mature theoretically. We stop doing that. But if you look at kids, that's very much, you know, you can watch a toddler trying to remember Abby when she was a baby or a toddler, and she's trying to grab a hold of a, of a space here. And the thing's glowing red hot, and she's trying to grab it, and I got in her way, and she screamed and hollered, and it's like, child, you're going to burn yourself, right? Didn't matter. She's still mad because my will is dominant, right? And I think that's Herod. I think Herod is living in a time and place where rulers often became so self-confident and so overwhelmingly arrogant that they believed they were gods. In fact, Herod was appointed by a guy named Caligula. Uh, read about him. Don't watch any of the movies about him, no matter what you do. Um, but uh, Caligula was insane, and he believed he was a god. Um, he believed that he was absolutely divine, and it was not an unusual thing for, for kings to believe that. And so Herod, like, my will is blocked, kill these guys, and then... He leaves Judea to uh, Caesarea. Um, He leaves this newly acquired territory that was given to him by Claudius um, that his uh, grandfather ruled, having, like, like moved into this central capital area, and he gets humiliated when things don't go his way, and he retreats to his capital. I, I think genuinely he was humiliated, right? And about the worst thing you can do is humiliate a king, right? I mean... I'm in charge, I'm in charge, I'm in charge, and now you've humiliated me. And so, humiliated, he flees to Caesarea. This is Caesarea by the sea. We're going to talk about it in a little bit. Like, parts of it have been rebuilt. It's actually a really neat neat place to visit. I recommend checking it out sometime. But he has run away in humiliation. He has been defeated by God, um, and he is unable to continue his persecution of the church. Um, Now... Act break and act two sets in. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. Now, real quick, I forgot my laser pointer again. I... I remember thinking I need to bring it, and of course, here I am. It's next to my bedside. Um, I need a stick. I don't have a stick. Sidon is way up here. See the little name in the ocean? That's Sidon. Tyre is the name under it. They were at one point both island city-states, right, until Alexander the Great decided to attack um, Sidon, and he found it very difficult to get his army across the water, So he filled the ocean in and built a bridge that is still there today. And he walloped them, and they never really recovered economically. But both of these are city-states that have independent rule within the Roman Empire. They have, like, all kinds of flexibility and their own rulers, and they can do their own thing, including get into a fight with Caesarea, uh, which is right there. Um, And so this is all about trade rights, right, and money, and... For whatever reason, Tyre and Sidon aren't playing ball, and he starts to flex his muscle, right? And he's got big political muscles because they can't eat without him. And so he's putting the screws to these guys, and they need to make peace with him, and they come 
Um, they, they rely on an interconnection like politics. We all love it, right? And they get there, and they actually, there's a little bit that's not included in this text, right? We have a little bit more background because of a guy named Josephus, who was a Jewish-Roman historian. And Josephus wrote about Herod Agrippa's death. These guys showed up, and like, um, they showed up about the same time that Herod Agrippa was having a birthday party for the emperor, Weird, right? And he has this, this giant circus maximus, um, I think is the right word. It's like a track where you run, you know, uh, chariots and people die, and sometimes you have people fight each other. And it's right on the sea. You can look out over the, over the Mediterranean Sea. John's been there. He's nodding. And, like, um, the sun shines on it. It is super bright and uncomfortable during the day because it's hot. Um, and at this point, like, what Josephus says is, that he's having this party and that it's full of officials from neighboring countries, right? And so Josephus acknowledges some folks are there to do trade with him and other people. And he's having this big party for the emperor who isn't there, weird, but like you had parties in his honor because you had to butter that guy up. He thought he was God. Well, that would have been Claudius who probably did not. Um, anyway, he's flexing his political muscle. He's showing off his wealth. All of these people around him are terrified. They need things from him. As it turns out, he became popular sort of with the Jewish people, and the emperors liked him, but the people around him didn't like him that much, right? And in fact, after he dies, he had statues of his daughter put up all over the city of Caesarea, and the Roman citizens there dragged, dragged the statues of his daughters out of the public square and put them in brothels. Because they hated him that much, like like really unpopular guy. So Herod Agrippa is there. He's flexing his muscles. He looks awesome. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a god, not a man. Now what we know, because like Luke, who wrote this, wasn't there. But Josephus tells us that this is roughly what happened. Um, but Josephus includes the fact that he covers himself in this insane getup made of silver. And that when he sits on his elevated throne in the Circus Maximus, right, he's up there above, the sun hits him and it shines everywhere. Like the light reflects off of this. And Josephus says that the crowd was awed and kind of terrified because the vision of it looked like he was a god. And he stood up and he gave a speech, and people fawned over him. You know why? Because kings could kill you. Also, because he looked really impressive. They were looking at the screen, and they're saying, look at all of that glory. Look at all of that wealth. That guy has power over us. We need to treat him with fear and awe and reverence. And so they began to yell out things like, Look at Herod Agrippa. He's like a god. He's got the voice of a god. And we all know God loves to share glory, right? No. You got it right the first time. Um, this is the voice of a god, not a man. Um, so the representatives of Tyre and Sidon are there, and they're acting like in this gushing, worshipful way toward this king. But immediately... Because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. All right. 
There's a whole lot of really gross stuff I want to share, but I'm not going to. Ask me later, and I will tell you there is so much fun stuff in this. I will tell you, Josephus tells us that his stomach cramped up, and he was in such severe pain after five days, he wept and cried out, repenting for taking credit as divine instead of pointing to, to whatever God it was that he happened to believe in. Like, like he died slowly and horribly of stomach pains. Luke was a doctor, and he either is saying eaten by worms as in food for worms, right? Or there was an epidemic of tapeworms amongst royal um, and wealthy people in the Roman Empire because of certain things they ate. Not going to tell you about them. I'm sorry. Ask me later. It is so gross and awesome. Um, but tapeworms, they can straight up kill you, right? Like, and they found certain foods in Caesarea um, that were one of the most common causes of tapeworms. The, the, these foods, by the way, had come from Spain, so they were really well preserved uh, and traveled, you know, halfway across the world at the time. Um, and so he's eaten by worms, probably tapeworms, probably a cyst burst, probably um, something awful happened inside him, and he died. But the long and short of it is, um, Herod Agrippa stood up and said, I am God. And in reality, he was a crappy imitation. Right? When he stood nose to nose with the real God earlier in the chapter, what happened? He lost. Not because the church was awesome, because the church kind of bumbled their way through it but because God is awesome. We cannot put ourselves in the position of God and pretend that we are that. And we cannot look at other things and say, this is God, or pretend that that is God. I have a duplicate slide there. But the word of, the, the word of God continued to spread and flourish. So at the end of the day, he tried to crush the church. He tried to stop it. But he was unable to, and God's church continued to grow while Herod Agrippa suffered, died, and rotted. Um, This is the way it will be with all bad imitations. You with me? Every bad imitation, no matter how awesome it looks today, will become food for worms tomorrow, or will rust, or moth will eat it. And, and there are all kinds of things that we decide are gods, like, like we decide politicians are, but like at the end of the day, politicians make very bad gods, right? Because they betray you a lot, and also because they're just men, and fallen men at that. Um, so in his pride, the last big idea I want to draw out of this text before we jump into our concepts, in his pride, Herod was struck down, but the church continued to grow. Um, so first, what are our concepts? What's behind this text? First, 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 worship of idols in the ancient world was very overt. It was something you saw all the time, but it was not any kind of less idolatry than what we have now. What do I mean by that? I mean, like you would build a statue to... Fertility, right? Or you'd build a statue to war. You'd build a statue to good sandwiches. Or you'd, you know, have an altar of this or an altar of that. When Paul goes to Athens, which is just one of the most insanely pagan, like, self-indulgent countries or city-states in the world, he goes to Athens and he points to 
an, like an altar to an unknown God as his illustration for talking about God. Like they worship things they didn't know just in case, right? Um, and you knew what idols were. People wore them. They carried them. They showed them off. They put them on their doorstep. They hung them up everywhere. But these things still exist. How do I know? Because, first off, you going to hear me say it again. The human heart is an idol-making factory. We look for things to worship because that is how we are designed. We are designed to find things to worship. Like, I would compare it to a combine. What's a combine designed to do? Cut and thresh, right? It doesn't know the difference between a skunk and wheat, right? It'll always do what it's meant to do as long as it's running. And as long as your heart is beating, as long as their mind has electricity running through it and blood coursing through your veins, you will find things to worship because that is how you are made. And just because it is not a statue of a, of a cow or uh, the fertility god like the Asherah pole, which is a big pole symbolizing fertility. Um, what? It was probably stylized too when you knew that. But like when – now mind you, mind you, I didn't mention that like off the cuff because like at the time that Josiah reformed the Jewish like temple system, there was a temple. The Ark of the Covenant was in there. He read the book of Deuteronomy for the first time in his life and was like, oh, man, we're screwing up. And he had all of the idols destroyed, and he had to walk into the Holy of Holies and drag a statue of an Asherah pole out of the Holy of Holies where it was sitting next to the Ark of the Covenant. Like, oh, my gosh, that is a terrifying decision, isn't it? Like, um, those idols are obvious, but in our lives... Political power is an idol, and it is on display right now, along with our idolatry towards safety and security and comfort, right? Half the world is insane right now because we're so afraid of losing our comfort. We're so afraid of being unsafe. Like, we worship these things, and we turn to our safety and our power and our money and our everything else instead of to God. We, we turn to ourselves, we turn to self, like, like, oh, I'm going to enjoy this so much, and what I'm going to enjoy is this thing that, that is not God, but it's going to bring me comfort and happiness. If, if the six-pack of beer at the end of the day is where your happiness lies, you might have an idol, right? If that thing in your hand, my wife was waving it at me as I was like, that thing in your hand that shows you the news and shows you what your neighbor is having for dinner because we all need to know that and shows you little jokes about one thing or another and, like, gets you super mad so you can't sleep and you don't want to talk to your kids or your wife because you're so busy looking at it. Like, if that is what is occupying everything in you, guess what? It's an idol. We worship ourselves. We worship stuff. We worship entertainment. We worship escape. We worship so many things that just aren't God. And it is a horrifying and terrifying reality. And it may not be standing up and saying, wow, look at Herod Agrippa. Isn't he awesome? He's like God. But anytime we attribute absolute power, anytime we attribute our safety to something else, we fail. Um, the prophet Habakkuk, Habakkuk, did I say it right, John? <laughs> uh, 
of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman or an image that teaches lies? For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold or silver. There is no breath in it. The Lord is in his temple, in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. I mean, how often do we pick things out and say, this is my God. This can comfort me. This can point me to the future. Science, or, and I like science. I'm not knocking on science, but we worship it. We worship our intellect. We worship our stuff, our technology, our, our money, our everything. Like the human heart does this, but at the end of the day, and here's the thing, just like Herod will one day be eaten by worms, right? Probably why Jesus said, store up your treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy them. Man's heart is full of sin, even though it's designed to worship God. So we seek out things to worship that are not God. I think I've said that a couple times, but I can't say it enough. Uh, Romans 1. Ooh, he's in Romans 1. (laughs) For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. What does that mean? It means if you look at the world around you, you know there's a God. Right? I mean, nobody had to tell me what certain sins were. I knew I shouldn't be doing them. Right? We know certain things. We are designed with certain truths within us and worshiping and seeking out and all of these things and perverting what God has made like like. That's sin. That is a broken version of what God created us to be. And so we can look around and see God's imprint and God's proof in everything. And we have no excuse because we can see it. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Say that again. They neither glorified him as God nor give thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened, meaning the further from God we get, the more foolish we get, the more silly and ridiculous, and the more we get confused and lost and we become broken. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. What does that mean? It means that in our lostness, every one of us, right? In Christ, we're made new, and our old man, that sinful man, and the new man fight each other. But without Christ, apart from the Holy Spirit, we will worship something, and it will always not be God. We will look at the screen, and we'll see a cheap imitation. We'll see proof of God, and we'll say, this is the thing I love. We'll see comfort or whatever, beauty, and say, this is it. This is God. We'll see worldly wisdom and say, wisdom is what God is. 
Science is what God is. The, the mechanics of God's creation is what God is. And it's foolishness. And the more we do it, the dumber we get and the more lost we get. And God says, I'll back up and let you do what you need to do. And sin overtakes us and it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. Just staring at that screen, not realizing that there's a window behind it. Right? What do we do with this? Well, first off, and I missed this last week, if you read the story of Peter escaping from prison, Peter was not an action hero, right? Dude was absolutely not an action hero. He, like, almost fell out of the building to escape, right? And then, like, the church didn't let him in because they thought he was dead, and it was probably his angel. Like, it was ridiculous, God saved him. And this is the truth for every single one of us. I am not saved because I put the work in. I'm not saved because I read the scriptures. I'm not saved because I, you know, sing the right songs or say the right words or confess the right stuff or whatever. None of that stuff will save me. The only thing that saves me is God saving me. It is Jesus Christ carrying my sin and being crucified and dying. I can't do that. It is him dragging me out of the hole I'll put myself in every time. And that is what saved me. The only thing I contribute to my salvation is, does anybody know the end of this sentence? The sin that made it necessary to begin with. I've said it a hundred times. You all need to memorize this. No, I'm kidding. Um, But that is the truth here. The only thing that, that I contribute is the need to be saved. God does all the work. And the truth is, um, if I don't know God, I'll fall for anything. Like through the study of scripture, through reading theology, and I know theology is a big bad word nowadays, but like there are people who will tell you all sorts of things that are just not scriptural. Like the idea that, oh look, there's one God and he shows up with different faces, but he's just wearing a mask. That's what the Trinity is. That's actually called modalism. Like it's not what the scriptures say. The scriptures teach that there are three persons to God, but that they are one. That's a way that we're often fooled and misled. There are prominent Christian writers, best-selling Christian writers who teach that. Um, there are best-selling like books out there and like prominent theological groups that will say Jesus was created, or God was once a man. Or God is just an angel. Or some other nonsense. Like, there's so much stuff out there. And if we don't know what we're supposed to know, if we don't know who God is, we will fall for anything. I think of um, Rachel and Leah and Jacob. Jacob earned the right to marry Rachel. And on their wedding day, a woman walked up to the altar wearing a veil. And he married her. And then the next morning, he finds out, like, oh, wait, I married the wrong sister. What? (laughs) How do you do that? It would take a lot for me to get the wrong Jessica, right? I mean, admittedly, we've been married for a few decades, but, like, I want to think that before we walked down the aisle, we had conversations. I learned what she liked. I learned what she doesn't like. I learned that, you know, certain kinds of music make her crazy or, or whatever. Like, I learned that grammatical errors often drive her mad. I know things about her. And if I don't know God, I'm going to end up with a, I'm going to end up with a Leah, not a Rachel. 
I'm going to end up with a version of God who forgives everything and looks the other way when I sin because God wants everybody to be happy. Ever heard that? Why would God stand in the way of me having fun? Or I'll end up with a God who wants me to earn my way to heaven and all I'm doing is staring at the screen. And even if I'm not staring at the screen, if I say, I can't know God personally, I'm staring at the curtains. Or I just don't know the Bible well enough and I'm not going to put the effort in to learn, the curtains are right there. But we live in an amazing and blessed like, like period of history where... Not only do we have Jesus, who is the ultimate revelation of who God is. He is the perfect picture of who God is. And he provides a way for us to know God. But there are Bibles everywhere. You know how insane that is? Like, I, I mean, you go to Goodwill, and they've got boxes and boxes of them. Because we have so many of them, we throw them away. Right? There are parts of the world where there might be a New Testament for an entire community. There are times in history where, actually I read about this where um, this man was, uh, like after the, the World War II ended, they were like tearing down the concentration camps. And this, uh, it was, um, he wrote uh, Man's Search for Meaning. He, he found in a concentration camp coat, uh, coat one page of the Bible that had been worn out because it had been read over and over and over again. But we leave it on the shelf. I'm not saying you do, but I know it's easy for me to do, isn't it? We're surrounded by bread and starving to death. We have to know God. We have to come to know him. We have to pursue him like, like you pursued your wife or your husband when you guys weren't wife and husband. You know, before you, like, like got busy and had kids and everything else, like when you were chasing after him because you just couldn't get enough of him, that's how we know God. We tear open the curtains and we stare at him face to face. It is valuable to identify our idols and root them out or put them in their place. There are things that become idols. Food is a wonderful idol. I had a 20-minute conversation this morning about chocolate. Right? And you're going to worship something. But how far do we go for a good meal, right? We worship our stuff. We worship our car. We worship our families. Oh, you can't worship your family. That's a gift from God. Of course you can worship your family. We worship all kinds of stuff. Like, and once we identify it, once we identify the thing that is like, like more than it should be, and we put it in its place, we put it under the umbrella of God's teaching and God's glory and God's like, like sovereignty, um, we put ourselves in a place where there's less screen in the way. If you do it long enough and you grow enough, eventually you maybe clean the window. Remember how dirty my window was? You could barely see my yard through the camera. Like, like sin gets in the way. Our selfishness and worldliness gets in the way. Eventually that gets clear. And the closer we get to the Lord, the less everything else matters. And the clearer a vision we have of him, the less we desire anything else. I think that's the reason when Peter was crucified by the uh, Romans under Nero... Um, I don't think he was afraid to go. And when he was, they forced him to watch his wife being crucified. And he called out to her, remember how he loved those who crucified him. Wow. That's a man who's seen God face to face. And nothing comes close. Right? Until you've tasted 
and drank deeply of the pure, delicious, living water, cold and refreshing, and never thirsted again. Everything else looks like it's what it is, right? Everything else can sell itself as that. Only Christ is Christ. Only God is God. And when we come to know him, everything falls into its place. And that's it. It's not necessarily an effort of, like, dig out all my sin. It's a pursue Christ and be close to him. I'm going to tell you, there are times I lose my temper and I yell at my wife. I know you're all shocked. Right? The closer I am to Jesus, usually the less I yell at my wife. It's weird. I'm a better parent when I read the Bible. I'm a better brother. I'm a better son. I'm a better all kinds of things when I'm standing closer to Jesus, when I'm doing it on my own. When I know what's right and what's best, I fail. Finally, humility and accountability. The hardest, hardest thing in the world is to be humble. You know why? You know how you learn humility? It's in the root word. Humiliation. Until you have stood in front of someone and said, I screwed up, I sinned against you. And I have nothing to offer as an excuse. I own it. You don't really know how wonderful that is. Painful and miserable, but at the same time freeing at a level that nothing in life is. Nothing is worse than being chained to a bunch of garbage that you keep hidden in your backyard. Confession and humility to quit pretending that we are God or that we have some sense of who God is on our own or that God is lucky he has us, right? In reality, we're saved by grace. We're all Peter getting dragged by the foot out of the prison cell. (laughs) With five more minutes, angel. (laughs) In a closing prayer, my challenge for you today is, like, what is your hair at Agrippa? What do you look at and get excited about and say, that is God? Surely this is the voice of God in my ears, scratching and tickling and making me feel good, right? Closing prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd be with us. I pray for your grace and your mercy on us. I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to the idols that exist in, in, our, in our sphere. I pray that you would help us to pursue you and come to know you and be intimate with you and, and help us to shed our old ways and our old life and our old selves and crucify our old flesh so that we can become more and more like you. I pray, Lord, that those who are in this room who've been staring at a screen and pretending that the pictures on this piece of cloth are really you. I pray that you would make it obvious to them. I pray that you would tear away the curtains that have blocked people's vision and help them to know you, not just know you, but know how much, how much you love them and that you're glorified through your mercy to us, like that you have dragged us out of our mud, you have dragged us out of our prison cell, and you have set us free because your son died for us. Help us to be people who can look clearly. Help us to be people who... Just stare intently at Christ every day, all the time, in everything that we do. Help us to become people who look at things and say, is this God? Is this of God? And if it's not, we put it in its place. I pray, Lord, most of all, that you do this for me. I so easily stumble. And I pray that you would give me clear eyes and a clear heart and a Holy Spirit that pierces me when I'm lost. In Christ's name, amen.